Welcome to the Uncut Podcast. I'm Pastor Luke. I am Pastor Cameron. And with us today, we have a special guest. We have Silas Conway. Good morning. Uh, Silas is a, um, well, he's a good friend of mine. We met, we didn't, we met, we went to the same Bible college together. Mm -hmm. um, And um, yeah, we went to the same church plant for a bit and did all those kind of things. That's kind of where we started our friendship, and yeah, you're in town this week, and we thought it'd be fun to have you on to the podcast. With yeah, us, so. I, I appreciate you guys being willing to let me just sit in. Uh, I know that you guys, um, just knowing Luke and getting to talk to Cameron once in a while when I get to visit, that you guys mm-hmm. are always having fun conversations, and so I'm I'm excited to just sit here and chat with you guys about um, things that are important to talk about, good, beautiful, and true topics, so mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So you've, just to give people a little bit of context, you obviously went to Bible college with me. You studied theology, right? Yeah, theology. um, I think a lot of my focus was in um, historical dogmatic theology, specifically in magisterial reformation studies. So um, the big names of of Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, Bucer, um, those People fascinated me and still fascinate me to this day. Um, there's there's a depth that people should. should there there there's some um, like everybody. There are good things and bad things about them, but they are um, they're uh, the depths of of human beings are are fascinating to me to to yep. study. So that history was important to me, and uh, I enjoyed it. So what what have you been doing post? Post, um, so I graduated from Moody um, and then moved to um, uh, Columbus, Ohio, and I left Moody wanting to um, find a place in academia, uh, and I did for about uh, two years. I, I, I went and, and worked as a classical educator uh, at a high school teaching um, medieval um, humanities, um, 11th grade English, um, Latin. Um, I ended up learning Latin in a summer, uh, and and teaching that because there was a there was a change in curriculum, and I was potentially going to be out of a job if I didn't figure out what to do. And so they said we need a Latin teacher. So I <laughs> I became the Latin teacher. Um, and uh, to clarify, as one learning, does. <laughs> learning 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 Latin, uh, especially to teach to junior hires in a summer, is not as impressive as it sounds. Uh, you know, I, I think we learned a whole of 250 vocabulary words. So like, you know, take Babel of Spanish for like, you know, three months and you'll, you know, it's, it's not that impressive, but it was, it was a lot of fun. And I, um, you know, mixing that with some of my um, studies of Greek in college helped me to um, understand the way that language works even better. So that was fun for me um, to develop that side of myself. And then I just, I found out how much fun teaching language can be, um, especially to um, younger students. They soak up language. They love um, doing the uh, parsing out of, of of verbs and declining nouns and finding their purpose in sentences and um, helping them to understand how we communicate was really fulfilling. So I did that for two years and I just finished my last year with them. I, I turned in my um, my resignation letter uh, in December because uh, I didn't want to uh, miss out on educating my own children. Uh, and so they were, 
you know, I have three kids. Um, I have a lovely wife. I, should, I don't know why I didn't start out with that. I have a lovely wife, Mackenzie. How dare um, you? I know. Start out talking about myself and I don't talk about, uh, you know, my lovely wife. Uh, we met at Moody. Uh, we got married. She's an editor, but more she just loves being a stay-at-home mom. And so through the course of a lot of events, which I'm not going to take the time to spend talking, we decided that we wanted a lifestyle centered around preparing our children for uh, the kingdom of God. And so that meant that we had to be very active home and present with them uh, and teaching them to be a full human being um, and that human being image being Jesus Christ. And so um, they needed to grow up in a household where they were being directed towards the uh, the new humanity that Jesus gives us. And so um, I, I could not imagine, I really started thinking once I sat in the education career, Am I really going to have to wait until eighth grade humanities or eleventh grade English to or tenth grade Bible? I taught Bible to to teach my you know to be with my kids for forty five minutes a day uh, <laughs> in those periods. And I I, just, I looked at that and I decided that that just wasn't going to be for us. Uh, and I really wanted to be actively at home with them. And so now we are um, starting a, a small homesteading business called St. Basil's Pasture. We'll be raising pasture-raised poultry and uh, beef cattle and, and doing um, some, some small dairy farming as well, um, just so that we have the opportunity to be at home, incorporate our kids into our lifestyle, and spend a lot of time uh, preparing them, hopefully, for eternity in the kingdom of God. So that's, I think that's the best quick summary uh, about me. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Do you have any questions? No, like I would appreciate getting to know a little bit of that story. When we, I think it was mostly at your wedding. Mm-hmm. We got yeah. that wedding, your wedding weekend. We got to talk a little bit about that. And yeah. It's exciting. There's some, you know, some crossover to my own, my own life and, you know, the, what Sherry and I and our family do just to try and supplement and raise our own food. Mm-hmm. And, um, homeschool some of our kids one of our one of our kids so you know i think that there is a lot of crossover there for us and um you know just appreciate i I can appreciate that lifestyle like not you know it's um sometimes what i've what i've found in like the both the homesteading and the homeschooling community uh I, i suppose this is kind of a little bit like in any in any community or subsection of culture is that when you do something that seems to be maybe a little bit non-normative, um, unorthodox, you know, unorthodox, that's a funny word for you to use. Um, <laughs> sorry. That was just such a softball for yeah, me. I'm sorry. Um, I couldn't help it. Uh, unorthodox that when you talk about it, it tends to, or it can, um, it can carry the weight of perceived judgment on those who don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, um, and I don't, you know, like, do I think everyone would benefit from raising their own food? Yeah, I do. Do I think everyone wants to or is cut out for it or that it's necessary for them? Absolutely I, not. I hope they don't because I really like doing it. And if everyone does it, then I'm not going to have a business. So I, I really like there are other people <laughs> yeah. doing other things. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm 100% there with you. And I think that was one of the hardest things about saying goodbye to my teaching career was that I was leaving to go teach my kids. And so when people would ask me, my friends and colleagues, you know, why are you leaving? And like, oh, because I want to go home and educate my kids. Well, 
they have kids too and they're working this job. Yep. And so that, that statement of just, this is what I'm doing seems to carry with it that, that, that judgment that like I'm choosing something better than what you're choosing. And I tried my best and, um, and and the same thing with 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 homesteading, which is a a part of it, you know, is that that somehow choosing this lifestyle is is somehow better than, um, mm-hmm. and that's not that's not true. Um, mm-hmm. It's just not it's not going to be for everybody. Um, I'm, you know, I was talking with a teacher friend who she's like, if I wasn't teaching, I'd totally be homesteading. Can I you know buy some chickens from you? I'm like, yes, I love that you're teaching and not homesteading so that you can buy chickens yeah. from me and yeah. so I can feed my family. So I'm, you know, I, I love that people aren't doing it. Um, I would just like to help people who aren't doing it get exposed to it a little bit. And so, yeah. well, I mean, the reality is, is that Instagram, <laughs> other things like that, they do a great job at romanticizing that life. Yeah. Um, and I will tell you that like, there are romantic aspects to it. But the romantic aspects to it are about 5% of it. The other 95% of it is just a lot of freaking hard work. Yeah. Um, a lot of time, a lot of energy. Um, very, you know, when you're doing it to make money, um, you know, the margins can sometimes be pretty thin if you don't know your market. Because mm-hmm. uh, we've done that. Like, uh, and we still do. You know, we still sell some of our products, honey, eggs, you know, pork and poultry. But, uh, you know, the margins are pretty thin they can be pretty thin. So, um, but, uh, yeah, to like try and escape, try and escape any sense of, you know, judgmentalism for those that don't, um, you know, is, I think it's, it's important. Like, mm-hmm. uh, well, obviously it's important, but sure. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, there's, but that there's definitely like, um, I don't know. I don't know if it's just our, own sensitivities or the way culture is, or just like we're very value and signaling based that when people, when people start making decisions based like out of strongly held values, that it's hard for other people to not take offense to that at times. Yeah. Well, it, it makes sense. So like, you know, for instance, when, when we choose to do something, especially something that is relatively countercultural or unorthodox or whatever word you want to use, when we choose to do something that takes a lot of hard work and that requires a lot from us, we mm-hmm. have done so because we have strong beliefs and opinions about that. And we don't do things based on what, like we, we do things based on what we think is the right thing to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we don't always separate what is the right thing to do for us versus what is the right thing to do fundamentally. Yeah. And, while there's can be crossover in that in all areas of life, it's not necessarily always true that the best thing for us is the best thing for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't always make that distinction um, very clear mm-hmm. that, you know, like, no, this is the best thing for our family, um, but it's not the best thing, period. Right. It's not the best thing fundamentally. Um, and, but when we don't make that very explicit in life, then it becomes, um, it becomes a, it can become a cog in other people's, you know, perception of why we are making the decisions that we're making. Like, oh, you do that. And so if I don't do that, then there's an, a perceived, judgment that's just really not the case mm-hmm. or at least shouldn't be the case i think it's also a symptom of of the modern western world that allows us 
to make such radical changes to our life that at other points in history, the ability to change your lifestyle in such a dramatic way was not a way to express your values. You couldn't just up and and do um, something completely different, or at least if you could, it came at probably even like I could, I could farm for the next five years. And then, um, you know, if it, if it wasn't, you know, terribly successful, but successful enough that I could then platform and I don't know, go to law school. Like I, the ability is there to, to make those dramatic changes. And so it's, it's kind of a new phenomenon that, that we can just up and move and do, um, that, that realm of choice is so much bigger. And so that's something that we, you know, you can leave your family of origin. You can do something other than what you grew up doing. Um, and then that creates that disconnect of, well, you know, why change? Why, you know, and, and then, then it, that, that perceived, um, uh, that, that perceived idea that, that I'm leaving something worse for something better than kind of blossoms in the minds of everyone who's perceiving what you're doing. Um, and it's, it's, it's difficult to control that, um, it's difficult to control how that's perceived and actually um, make it something that's not such a virtue signaling and, and just something that is focused on this is what is right for our family, not this is the virtuous thing that everyone should mm-hmm. be doing. Mm-hmm. So it's difficult. Yeah. Well, we wanted, well, Cameron, when you came in and you sat down, you were starting to kind of, we were starting to talk a, bit, a little bit about friendship. That was kind of something that was, on your mind, and funny enough, it was a significant portion of our conversation last night. Uh, Silas and I were having yesterday, mm. so like, I think that would be a really timely thing to, to yeah. kind of talk about. What was kind of bouncing in your head around on that topic? Yeah, well, you know, I have, you know, in the two years or so that we've gotten to know each other, yep. you and I, um, I have admired that you have strong friendship mm. with you know guys particularly from moody the guys that were in your wedding silas connor phil Corey, mm-hmm. um and you know that that friendship is very like it's obvious in the fact that you even in adulthood and with lives and some of you having kids and being in ministry and you know the busyness of life you still maintained some sense of like things that friends do together, spending time together and visiting one another and mm-hmm. whatever. And, um, you know, there, you know, there is, you know, there's this, there's a, a meme that goes around on the internets. Um, it says essentially, you know, like, uh, everyone talks about the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine, but mm-hmm. no one talks about the miracle of Jesus having 12 close friends in adulthood. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe we should say 11 close friends in adulthood. Uh, um, there's always that one. Yeah, there's always the one, right? Uh, and if you don't know of the one, you, you are, are the, the one. one. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it, you know, it's kind of like funny haha, but it's also funny like sobbing. Yes. Funny, yeah. You know, yeah. because it becomes, I find that it has become increasingly true that um, as we become adults and we have lives, uh, maybe we get married or we have significant, you know, intimate relationships and we have kids and we get into our careers mm-hmm. and, um, that the, 
that friendship becomes more and more difficult and more and more complicated. And um, I will say this with a little bit of trepidation, but I think I do believe it is it becomes more and more dangerous. Mm. I think friendship becomes dangerous from the sense of like the, what it requires of the person in their vulnerability in order to maintain good friendship Mm -hmm. puts us in a place where like, you know, as our lives grow and as we have families and as they become more complicated, not just logistically, but emotionally and mentally and all of that, like live life's, they get complicated as we grow. Um, The ability to both maintain and especially the ability to create where there isn't any significant friendship that can kind of um, ascend ascend above the complexities of life and like the development of strong like fellowship and community and vulnerability and true love for one another. Mm -hmm. Um, It just is really, 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 really difficult really difficult yeah and so i was thinking about that kind of in the context of knowing silas was in town and that you know he was going to be here on the podcast this morning and just like wondering both from a sense of like as people of faith but also just as like adult human beings Mm -hmm. you know what makes friendship so difficult and what are like some of the what are some of the qualities and characteristics of both people and relationships that make friendships work mm-hmm. in adulthood because like you know as a yeah. 40 almost 41 year old man with um you know leading a ministry and having five kids and um, like I would say that probably some of the most difficult, the most difficult relationships that I have now is in fr- my friendship relationships, hmm. you know, and, but there's like this deep seated sense of like that need mm-hmm. of not like a, not just surface mm-hmm. acquaintance. Yeah. I don't need somebody to talk about score of the football game with. No. Like. A little or bit, just, but just, just, just the score of the football right. game. Like, I don't need acquaintances. Right. Um, I've got... Don't really want acquaintances anymore. Like, yeah. For me. Well, you know, like, there's always going to be some level, I think, of... You're, you're always going to have a outer circle of acquaintances totally. that you could you could sit down and have a cup of coffee with sure. or a meal with, but that, you know, aren't, aren't, aren't necessarily a, what you would consider core friendships. Mm-hmm. But um, but what what I feel, like, down into my very soul... Is like, do I have, do I have friends that I can just pray with, mm-hmm. or that do I have friends that don't see me or need me to be mm. pastor? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, you know, um, do I have people that just know, um, you know, me for? me and that is that that's enough and i think that in a lot of ways um 
that that is not just a me problem. No. I think that that's a that's a that's a, a thing that a lot of adults experience now. Oh yeah. So I said all that to say, you know, like you know, having Silas here as your friend, mm-hmm. friend for many years now, right? Um and you've both kind of gone ways in life where you're both married and Silas has kids mm-hmm. and you know, in careers and life choices and moving away and whatever you've maintained a sense of friendship you've maintained friendship not a sense of but you've maintained friendship Mm -hmm. and so you know i I think like it's a it's a curious thing to me and i thought maybe it would be be an interesting thing to kind of just you know hit back and forth a little bit to see if we could determine what it takes well the funny thing is i was wondering if you're going to mention this i know where you're going (laughs) because silas and i almost weren't friends (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> and and this is actually something that I think is going to be imp- interesting to talk about, and and maybe well, yeah, well, well, like yeah, we did, we didn't hit it off when first we first year. met, or yeah, for first year or more. Um, <clears throat> I think we both mutually drove each other nuts, to be honest with each mm, other. Um, yeah. like we we both went to the same school, and like thing about going to at least. Moody, the Bible college we attended is like you didn't you didn't want to go to a church or be involved in a ministry where there were a whole bunch of other Moody's Moody people, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, I found I met up with like a church planner and like eventually worked with the church plant as the associate pastor, and I was getting involved in like the very very early like on the couch around the coffee table stages of the church plant, and then all of a sudden this underclassman shows up who's like involved and i was like who's this moody student get off my church you know like i wanted to be the inside moody student and and i think you weren't there at the first meeting that i was at so i felt that i had staked my claim first and then you showed up or at least you showed up late or something yeah so i was like oh there's already another one of us here yes so there's immediately some like I don't know, competition. <laughs> yeah. But then also like our personalities, we've since found out that our our personalities on the are the exact opposite on the spectrum. Like if you're like like if you know the Myers Briggs, I'm an ISFP. ENTJ. He's like the exact opposite. Mm. And so we just we both thought so that's the, the key. other find someone who's no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Well, we both thought the other person just graded against us. Right? Oh, yeah. I was like, why won't he be quiet? <laughs> why won't he ever talk? Just sits so, in the back and does the dials on the sound machine. Yeah. yeah. So we just both. But we. But what, what do you remember, Silas? What was like the thing that eventually like we had a really bad double date once. Um, but how did we actually cross the barrier from kind of just vulnerability? Like, uh, you had had a bad breakup. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think what happened is, so my wife and I um, were kind of, uh, the the church had, had, had gained a reputation and gotten really good at doing um, really mm-hmm. intentional hospitality. And we picked up on that. And so the pastor and his wife were good at inviting everybody. So we're like, all right, we're going to do that too. And so we started inviting everybody. And we spent an entire year inviting everybody except for Luke. Because I did not want to talk to him. <laughs> and we were like, we have to invite Luke and his girlfriend. Um, 
Like we've literally invited everybody over to our house twice because our church was small and we had invited everybody over twice. And like, okay, we have to invite the associate pastor over. So we did, and we had that awkward date. And then I think you had had a breakup and then, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and just as, you know, somebody, a part of the community were like, we needed to, um, you know, minister to you or just, you know, be a, be a friend, even though we weren't close. Like that's, it was terrible. And everyone was like, you know, you know, um, and I think in that vulnerability, um, you started talking more, not that that was the problem, but that I saw that part of you, you were expressing. Um, and one thing that we do connect with is both of us are pretty emotionally aware and like to talk about those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, you had an, enough of an emotional experience to kind of, um, you could not, I think, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but you couldn't really hold up the facade. I think a lot of the times you're really good at, at, at having a face. And yeah. I, I don't like that because, if you can't tell, I, I really like to show my emotions and express those. And so when somebody doesn't, I'm immediately distrusting of them. Uh, and I have a hard time if someone's got, you know, a, you know, they're, they don't do a lot. And, and so when you had the breakup, I think that vulnerability came out. Um, you were, uh, and you were over at our house and then, um, and then it, it was enjoyable enough just having you over that in lieu of uh, you also you know, had just been broken up and we felt like we need to invite you over more and include you more, uh, that it just started naturally. Like, I think at that point, then we started doing like every Sunday after church yep. movie and pizza with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it just became super fun when we found out what a cool guy you were. And so I think there was a, there was a crucible of emotion mm-hmm. that really helped to spark, um, some really quick, um, not manufactured emotional vulnerability mm-hmm. that helped us to connect. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't think that is a formula um, for friendship, but I think that was a natural phenomenon. It's that an ingredient to our, yeah, it's, not, it's not the totality of it. Well, because like the other part too was is that like you know on the uh, on the flip side of it is you guys practiced like vulnerability inside of hospitality. Like um, you guys were inviting me over, like having like spending time with me listening and then eventually like you guys shared and shared in uh vulnerability it didn't stay in a place of like um oh poor luke or something like that it eventually it transitioned into a, a i sort of shared emotional uh, you know uh spiritual and emotional support on both sides yeah i started sharing you know frustrations with my my past and, and what i was going through at school and frustrations with um you know uh, multiple different things about myself mm-hmm. yeah yeah because the thing about vulnerability is one true vulnerability in friendship is not a one-way street yeah because then it's a counseling relationship mm-hmm. you know like Describe the relationship where one person is vulnerable and the other is not. Well, that you're sitting with a therapist or a pastor, yeah. Yeah. right? So you know that 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 doesn't work. And I think that the thing about one of the things about vulnerability is, at least in the developing of intimate or close friendships or relationships, is that there is a there's a mutuality of vulnerability that's not just sharing. But that's also receiving. Yeah. Like you have you have to be a person who is able to receive someone's vulnerability, not necessarily just someone who is able to share your own yes. vulnerability. You that's know? really big. Yeah. So like 
if they're, if you are, um, you know, if you're on the receiving end of someone's vulnerability, mm -hmm. like let's just say that you have a, you have a relationship with someone where you're both sharing really vulnerable parts of yourself. Yeah. Maybe just because you're overwhelmed and it's the person that's in front of you, or maybe it's because you're intentionally trying to develop that friendship. Um, and you're really, really good at sharing here mm -hmm. what's going on, mm -hmm. but you're really, really, really poor at receiving it. Like either their vulnerability makes you uncomfortable or you, um, it's possible to over sympathize and over empathize. You put yourself, oh, yeah. you put yourself in a bad situation. Then it's really tempting, especially for men to be like, well, I hear your vulnerability and you're speaking about a problem. Let's go fix it. Yeah. You know? Um, and so then the person sharing just kind of becomes the project to fix rather than the person to exist. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's this kind of like delicate balance I find of, um, and reality is men aren't really great at being vulnerable. Even the most vulnerable among us are not really great at being vulnerable. Um, so, so there's this balance to like begin, there's this balance to tread or to walk on where like, okay, how do I become a person who like where vulnerability, I receive it safely mm -hmm. and in a way that um, allows for continued both sharing and building of friendship. Well, I think you're hitting on something I think is really important to talk about. And it's definitely this, like, um, it is this place where I've seen people kind of get trapped, where you really, really want or need friendship and relationship. Um, this sometimes happens in dating relationships, but I've also definitely seen this happen in friendship relationships, where there's a... Um, because like relation, it's it's a hard thing because we do need relationship. We need uh, we need people, mm -hmm. but when we come to a place where, like, if I was becoming friendly with you, and I sat down, I immediately mm -hmm. went to a place of like a lot of vulnerability, mm -hmm. really fast, mm -hmm. and I was immediately like, you got a sense that I kind of had like, I was trying to kind of grab onto you a little bit, yeah, like a vacuum. Yeah, a little uh -huh. bit of a vacuum. I'm like, uh -huh. I, I want you. I want friend. I want friend. I want friend. Like that's kind of the vibe you're putting off. And what happens a lot of times, and, and it's really sad because I think a lot of friend friendships and relationships are cut short because of this reality. But what happens is the person who um, is not the not the one who's in the kind of needy emotional space um, senses that, and then loses uh i think what they do is they lose trust is my thought is that we sense that the other person is coming to us needing something from us needing maybe us to like, you're like wow this person really really wants and is really being vulnerable and giving a lot to me and i don't feel like i trust them mm. 
to like, like, I don't feel like I want to be mutually vulnerable with them because I, there's something about the way that they're approaching the relationship with such a high intense need that, um, that makes me hesitant to engage in it. Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, I know that, I know that feeling. Or I know like that that happens, but I don't know that I would have said that it was trust. Me neither. No, you guys have thought. If you guys, so we'll pick back up where we where we were just at. We had a technical difficulty, but um, we were talking about that idea of like when someone comes to a relationship really needing that relationship, mm-hmm. and then. Like I was expressing the idea that like it's kind of like lack of trust, but you guys are saying like that wasn't necessarily what you guys were identifying. What, and you were in the middle of saying what? Yeah, I I, I think that human beings have a natural perception at um what a relationship will cost in social currency, hmm. uh, in emotional um mm-hmm. uh, uh attention, um how much attention I will. This is uh actually. Uh, there, there, there's studies done, especially uh, around adults and children, and children who do not have properly developed social skills by like four years old. There's, a, there's this range from like two to four where there's a lot of uh, very fundamental and, and 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 like ground level social skills that are learned that if aren't learned makes it very difficult four years on and onwards in the child's development as as far as becoming a part of the community that if they don't have those develops it it becomes very hard for them to have relationships and when those aren't trained and developed in the the, those two formative years um, adults can pick up on that and those are the children that we know are going to take more of us and it's like if you watch there's like a wave around the child that will happen even like physically uh, where people will move away because um, they, they, and the child might do something along the lines of like be very inappropriately um, uh, doing physical contact, like lots of physical contact, like climbing on you. And at four years old, a four year old who is, who does not understand that you can't just go and, you know, clamber onto somebody like a two year old, uh, we as adults feel like that. So that child has obviously not received um, correct uh, training um, and has not had people that gave them that physical contact. And so now they're, they're, they're desiring that and they're coming towards you and you're recognizing that that is going to be a big emotional, if you're, if you're going to commit to this, this is going to be a, a long and, and more difficult emotional um task for you to engage into um, and and it's going to require a lot of you and I think that we can pick up on that with each other so that when we come to a relationship and we start to you know do those same things in different ways where we're like socially uh, it, you know it, it's socially awkward to overshare and be really vulnerable right at the start it's easy for someone on the receiving end of that to perceive okay somebody has not had the emotional connection that they need even if we can't articulate that uh, and I'm not sure that I want to be the one to fill that large gap that they're asking me to fill. It seems like it's not going to be, and I know it sounds economic and, 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 um, utilitarian. Um, and that's not all it is, but I think we have to acknowledge that some part of it is, is just that there's a bit of us that kind of recognizes that I'm not willing to emotionally, um, 
do all that work of filling that whole need that you have. And you're kind of asking a lot of me and I'm not sure if I'm willing to give that to the relationship. And we pick up on that. I think that's what I would, I would say uh, is what we're recognizing in those moments. Is that like along what you were thinking or something different? Yeah, No, I was thinking, yeah, something similar that I, what I feel is that we tend to have a gauge about how how much willingness we have to enter into relationships that will seem non-reciprocal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, where it becomes like a helper helpy rather than a, I think it just in, and, and I, I don't, I don't necessarily think that this is a viable or a very healthy way to, to enter into any relationship, but you know, like, the old adage that, you know, first impressions make a difference. They do. You know, they do make a difference. Those impressions can be overcome. Yeah. Your guy's relationship, a perfect example, mm-hmm. right? Um, but uh, when there is an immediate, when there's an immediate like bolus yeah. of vulnerability in like a, I am not ready to reciprocate the same level of vulnerability because I don't know you. Yeah. And maybe trust comes in there. Like I don't, I don't trust. I, I don't think it's like a, yeah. So maybe I, I suppose that trust is an underlying issue. I don't trust you enough to share the same level of vulnerability that you're sharing with me. Mm-hmm. It's not that I distrust you because of the vulnerability you're sharing. Yeah. It's I distrust being able to share that level of vulnerability with you. Mm-hmm. And so the relationship is, it exists in an imbalance, yeah. an emotional imbalance that creates a little bit of an emotional hierarchy in the relationship that mm. doesn't allow true connection mm-hmm. to happen, at least yeah. in the beginning. Yeah. I, you know, like we're not talking, again, we're not talking about dating. We're talking about like friendships. Friendship. Yes. But, like this, this can be a component and it was a component I dealt with in romantic relationships for a long time was anytime I came to a romantic relationship, I was coming from a place of lack of security, lack of identity, lack of, I just generally lack of self. And I was coming in like my, my idol for a significant portion of my life has been romantic relationships. Uh, I've wanted to get my sense of self, my sense of identity, my sense of purpose and like security from having a romantic emotional relationship with a partner. Mm. And when I did that, I think at a very gut level, the person on the other side of that always felt that I was asking too much of the relationship. Like Mm. I was asking the relationship to do things only God can do. Yeah. And, and it was becoming, it was, it was unhealthy. It always led to an unhealthy place, but we can do the same thing with friendship. And like in, you know, uh, some of us do that in romantic relationships, but some of us also just do that in relationships or in friendships. Um, I do, I do remember, um, so I was an RA uh, on campus in college and like, Resident assistants, you know, like on some colleges, campuses, like they're just paper pushers, people who just kind of like make sure people go to bed by curfew, kind of just like 
the hall monitor of college. Um, but the Bible college we were at, like, put a way bigger spiritual and pastoral emphasis on it, which wasn't necessarily healthy. So I would have people coming into my dorm room all the time, like, needing life advice and help and, and stuff like that. And when I graduated, and some of the guys on my floor would run into me post-graduation, and they would want to sit down, and I had, like, coffee with a handful of them. And we would sit down, and we'd have a conversation, and it, for them, I could tell that they were not, they were expecting the same level of, like, counselor, pastor, Luke. I was like, but I'm not your RA anymore. Like, if you want to be, if we want to maintain a relationship outside of this, it has to become more mutual. It has to come from a place of like, I'm not here to be the wall of reflecting for you to kind of process whatever life thing you're going through. Like, you've got to ask me about how I'm doing too. Right. You know, it becomes, there. it has to be a mutual supporting of each other. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And right, wrong, or indifferent, there has to be a set like when there is a sense, when there is a even a perceived, and you can talk about it in whatever dimension that you want, a perceived power imbalance mm-hmm. in a relationship, it be, it's really, really difficult for there to be um, uh, true, I think, like healthy, healthy friendship and yeah. healthy relationship, which is, I think, why it is difficult. Maybe I don't like to talk about ministry or pastoral work or leadership in ministry as with like use power dynamics to describe them. Yeah. Cause that's so totally antithetical to what we believe about the gospel or to what I believe right. about the gospel. Well, anytime we put on a singular lens, things get distorted. Right. But the, the reality is that, there is a perception of imbalance between um, pastoral work and being just a regular lay member of a congregation, you know? And so how many times do we see or interact with people who speak to us and interact with us differently Mm -hmm. than they would just a friend Right? Yeah. Because there's this perceived level of like, you're a pastor, so there are ways in which I should talk to you, act around you, interact with you mm-hmm. that they don't that they don't carry with them in other relationships. And so even despite our best efforts to maintain a even keeled sense of like interaction with people, they sometimes don't allow that yeah and so it becomes difficult for you know there's a like there's this a real sense of like question out there in ministry at especially in pastoral ministry is like can you be friends with the people that you're pastoring yeah well so like i well so like i you said this at the very beginning and you said you were kind of hesitant and i think this is kind of getting to to it, you you said that making friends as adult is perhaps a really dangerous thing. It becomes mm-hmm. more dangerous to make friends as adults, and and I've had an experience. I've had a couple of experiences where I was interacting with someone I was who was also like in ministry too, and I was like, oh, I thought 
I, I thought I was like, oh, maybe this is like a, a friendship. This is I'm not just I'm not just being a pastor in this moment. I'm, this is some friendship, and I extended some vulnerability. And then what I later found out was that that vulnerability was then shared amongst the you know the gospel gossip 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 vine, right? Like the church gossip vine. And I was like, who told you that? Like, oh. That person that I thought I was talking, I thought we were, ha- I thought there was an understood, like, this isn't going to go anywhere kind of thing. It wasn't anything particularly, it was more personal, but it wasn't anything like awful or scandalous by anything like anything like that. It was just kind of a letting someone in on what was going on in my personal life a little bit. And next thing I knew, like a lot of people knew, and I was like, ah, that was not intentional. Yeah. And then I had a sim- conversation with the same person. And what I slowly started to realize is that a lot of the questions they were asking me were not questions about me. They were questions with a back door open to learn about the behind the scenes of what was happening at the church. They wanted to know, like, they began to ask me questions about, like, you and about, like, other things going on. And I was just like, no, like, that's not, like, if if we want a personal relationship, like, we're not going to talk about, like, the behind the scenes stuff, like trying to get some sort of inside scoop, which there isn't really much one to be had in case you're curious. But, um, but I do think like Silas, there's something to like, because I was your pat, one of your pastors. Yeah. When we really started to become, uh, close friends. And it's been something that we've had to, uh, we had to navigate for a while and then Mm -hmm. post in a place where I'm no longer your pastor. Mm -hmm. Like it, you know, so it kind of became a, you know, I'm curious what you're, as you're hearing Cameron's thoughts on that, like that power dynamic, that difference, like. Yeah. So, well, I honestly, I, I had a couple questions for Cameron where, where he was going with that, but I'm not sure we really want to, this is really the time to talk about specifically ministry friendships. We're talking more about friendships, so I'll try to keep it there. Um, um, we could talk about it all. We're this is uncut here, right. so you're gonna you're gonna get it whether you want it or not. Right. So. Uh, yeah. But I, I like that might not be helpful for people just to talk about that. But so I'll, I'll we'll just talk about. Um, yeah, when you were talking about your RA relationships, my my thoughts were well, after we got out of you know crisis mode and the breakup, where mm-hmm. Mackenzie and I were providing more of a um, a a physical refuge outside of your apartment to come spend unload that wasn't at the church in front of everybody and we could have pizza and hang out. And once we got past that, then the friendship started to build. And at that, I don't think at that point you were my boss yet. We were were just working together. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the friendship had begun and then, um, but all, but already there was a there was an age gap and there is still a much bigger maturity gap there between us than there is now I I think um, where I as you're talking about your RA relationships I was thinking back after we got past the the breakup I was like no I I started to look up to Luke like like kind of like an older brother for a good bit and like I was going to Luke for like I think pretty early on in the friendship it was more one sided um, not not super unbalanced but you were giving me way more um advice coaching um 
and and taking on and then you and then you became my boss and then so that kind of solidified there as you were kind of uh my 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 boss uh, my authority figure um and you were directing parts of my ministry um as the worship director as i was directing other people and so that naturally kind of turned into that dynamic but then you know, we had a, a pastor that was over both of us. And mm-hmm. so there was also like a camaraderie, um, like, you know, assistant manager and, and, and assistant to the regional manager, assistant to the regional manager <laughs> and yeah. And, and everybody else versus the, the general manager, which is a little bit high. So it was easier for us to relate than I think probably was for you to relate, uh, to your, your boss. And so it had enough of a casualness in the professional relationship um, structure that we were able to overcome that and, and work around it. And then definitely afterwards, um, you know, after you, after we were no longer working together, then it really just solidified as, 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 as a, just a mutual friendship. Um, uh, I, I didn't have any difficulties being friends with, but I was also part of ministry, right? I wasn't somebody, so we could talk about different parts of ministry, um, so there was a little bit of confidence there where, mm-hmm. um, you couldn't talk to me about some of the things that you and the head pastor were talking about, but that was okay. I didn't have a problem with that. Um, but we had some shared frustrations about like, you know, th- things that, you know, were people, you know, not showing up consistently on, on Sundays and you're like, it's a bummer that, you know, things like that, that we could the talk about. The struggles of being in a church plant that's 15 people big. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like but, just yeah. normal things. Um, and so we, we were able to um, kind of bridge that. I know you like, I, I feel slightly uncomfortable by the word too, but the slight power dynamic of him being my pastor. Um, but because we were kind of co-pastoring the church, it wasn't as big of a gap. Yep. And so, but that, there was there was definitely like I do remember making conscious cho- conscious choices on my part to like even though like there were moments where like Silas, you needed me to be a pastor to you, to be a good friend to you, and like you were needing some advice and things like that. I I made a choice. I do remember making choices to say like no, like I'm still going to be vulnerable. In addition to that, I'm not going to yeah. choose to let that be the defining dynamic i didn't want that to be the defining dynamic Mm -hmm. so i do think that it it maybe speaks when we're talking about friendships in a ministry context it speaks to the culture that has been built around ministry and leadership and ministry more than it does about friendship probably yes you know um because you know like to you know the, the the common kind of refrain is well yeah we're friends but okay now if we get into a situation where as a pastor maybe there is a little bit of admonishment mm-hmm. or or gentle exhortation in a direction you know that is that my heart is hard mm-hmm. in then it becomes a like a you know if we don't if as a friend we don't have a heart to receive a humble, teachable, gentle spirit in general, mm-hmm. not just in that relationship, but in general. Yeah. Then when our friend comes and tells us, or our pastor comes and tells us, they're like, well, who are you 
Who like right? Why are you being the heavy? I know things about you, right? And we're like, well, yeah, I I know you do, right? We're we're both sinners, yes, because we're because we're friends, and I've shared those with you in vulnerability as as friends, but it does not negate the reality of like that in this context or in this relationship or this conversation, like you, you need me to not just be a friend, but also the, you know, like the, the person to whom like has, has accepted a weight of responsibility for the shepherding of your soul. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and the thing too, is that like, there's that unique, authoritative responsibility that sits inside of the ministry context. But I do think that we've lost a little bit of the view of biblical friendship in that we've lost the sense of those. There's a number of proverbs that talk about friendship. Yeah. The one that sticks out to me is like um, harmful are the words of like, um, or the harmful, like the soft words of an enemy. uh, But like good are the painful words of a friend. Yep. Right, like the idea of a friend coming, who's not a pastor, who's not trained in ministry, but is a friend in Christ, yep. coming up and saying, "Hey, man, like, I, I, I'm with you enough to see this pattern in your life, and I'm, I'm, I want to wake you up to what God wants to do in in that. Like, can can you do that? And I think that that category or the ability, because so much of our concept of friends, and I understand why, is because we need that, is just like, oh, we just need like buddies to hang out with, people to be with. I just need like uh, like less pressure. Like I don't need someone to need something from me. We just have fun. And then we, because we long for that kind of relationship, but then we're, we're shortcutting what I think God intends for it and that being a, a mutual upbuilding. Like yeah. someone who... Someone who genuinely, like, I, I talk about this a lot with the the recovery stuff that I've done and just working on, like, people with addictions and things like that. And I, I will talk with people who are particularly making a, a change, uh, moving away from use of alcohol. And what they often find is that they find out who wasn't actually their friend. Because yeah. all of a sudden they've got friends who are really mad at them because they have stopped drinking alcohol. It's like, well, they were not your friend because your friend would want the best for you. And if the best for you is to not be consuming alcohol, they should not be guilting you, shaming you, uh, trying to cajole you into having a drink. They should be supporting you. Mm -hmm. And I think we've like, that's a huge, because you know, Lewis defines friendship as walking alongside a path, coming alongside someone and saying, and saying, oh, I enjoy this thing. And the person says, oh, me too. And that's how C.S. Lewis describes friendship starting. And I think that's true. But if it only ever stays in a realm of like uh, convenience or shared interest Mm -hmm. and never moves into interest into the other selves, And to their best, like we're we're shortcutting what God has for us inside of that relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What what else? Like we talk about a lot about like the internal, the internal dynamic of friendship. 
like internal to ourselves and to the other person being vulnerable, you know, like having like this sense of like safety. I think to me that, that like it speaks a lot towards like sort of a congruity in emotional IQ, like the ability to be vulnerable and share and receive and all of that. But there's also, I think aspects of like what in adulthood where there becomes a practicality of life that makes friendship more difficult and what are kind of some of the hurdles and or necessities for creating good friendship in adulthood like say you guys didn't have a strong friendship yeah before now that you're living three hours apart you know the proximity you know, basically, it's difficult to be good friends if you're not proximal to one another. Yes. You know, and sometimes you can be super good friends and then have a lot of space, physical or geographical space, and the re- realities of your friendship change. Change, mm-hmm. you know. Because so, you two are changing. Because you're becoming different people. As you are, as you are physically apart, you're not having shared experiences anymore and 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 so the people that are coming back together are in some ways different than than where you were before or even just are you saying like just um the cost of continuing to invest like we lived when we when we knew each other in chicago you were a walk away we were a walk away from each other i just had to walk across the park and yep. i could be at your <laughs> house lovely um but now, like, the cost of investment is, you know, a Much full tank higher. of gas yeah. and a night away from family in order for us to spend time together. Thank you, Mackenzie. Um, so, <laughs> um, like, to, not everybody not everybody maintains relationships when those costs rise. Is that what you're more Yeah, more kind, yeah I, I guess, yeah, that would... Uh, and I, I think that, that what Silas sure is probably a underlying, like, I think that's what happens... Yeah, when there's a lot of distance, I don't think that it's necessarily like the reason that it happens. Yeah, right? yeah, because 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 we have moved away and we have changed, but the difference is that I mean, with modern technology and phones, we are able to Luke and I are able to perceive the changes and 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 see and and participate still in those changes in those life events still, and it's when that communication breaks down that some that. It's like going back to if you don't maintain that communication, it's like going back to your hometown and expecting like that old friendship to be mm-hmm. no, you're different now, mm-hmm. like you didn't continue it. Yep. Um, and so that's all I was saying is yep. that it's, yeah. yeah, that's not what us being far away and changing apart from each other is not what's going to break our friendship apart. It's going to break our friendship apart is if we stop making the emotional commitment to to let each other know what's going on. And, and Luke is still involved in my life, even if he's not physically there right. and I'm still involved in his. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is like a logistical, like um, I find that it's sometimes hard to make friends with people who are outside of your same life stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Like being a single guy and trying to make friends with couples, particularly couples with kids. Like that's a pretty big life stage jump. And, like, that was difficult. And, like, me having to learn to make the consideration of, like, oh, yeah, 
they can't stay out till you know eleven o'clock because like they need to be home for their family. Middle of the night, Luke. (laughs) The middle of the night. (laughs) Because like you got kids, got to go to bed. They got to be fed. Like they're, you know, you got those things. Or like it's easier for me to go. Like as fun as it is, I'm like, oh, like it would be just be so more fun if like they could come to my place. But the thing is, is my place isn't childproof. No, doesn't have <laughs> doesn't have anything for kids to do, right? And they're like, well, hanging out with me also involves hanging out with my family a little bit, and I think that dynamic becomes difficult sometimes. Yeah, yeah it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I get the sense that like. People, there's been like stuff. I think there was an article released recently that talked about like the loneliness epidemic and and all of this stuff. And there's a you know the book I always think about with this topic is and I've never read it. I've just heard about it a gazillion times. Is bowling alone? um, You know, like this idea of um, loss of like communal third spaces. Right. Um, Adults don't do things by together anymore. It becomes more like nuclear family focused and stuff. But I do get the sense that everybody is longing for friendship, longing for community and connection, mm-hmm. but we're all waiting for the other person to make the move. Right. And the reason I think one of the reasons, and and you're talking about the communal space there is that for, I would say 90, 95% of everybody living in our cultural context um, was put into a school system where friendships were, you know, circumstantial and it, and the emotional effort of, of putting yourselves in a place, like it, it was, it was utilitarian. You, you had to be friends with who was there. Um, some, I mean, my wife went to a really big high school where you could kind of choose your friends, but I went to a small high school where it's like, my class was, you know, I think 30 by the time we got, like there were 30 of us when we graduated. So you had to be friends with them like there and, and you were with each other every single day. And so there was, there's, uh, that was the way that we were taught to develop friendships. And then you go into, um, you, you transition into adult life where you're not required to spend time with people. Uh, and you can always choose to leave. Um, and you're not forced to work through some of those difficult things because of circumstantial space that you've not had to flex the muscle of working through um, on your own self-discipline uh, to stick with certain groups or or a place or a person that you kind of have to, like you can get a fight with your friend in homeroom, but the bummer is you're going to be in that homeroom for the next like three years with them. And so you're going to have to get over that beef really quick, or it's going to be a miserable, you know, high school career for you. Um, and you know, and I, I don't think we have the opportunity in that context to flex the muscle of, um, our, our own independent, um, discipline to, uh, work through some difficulties and the ability to kind of flee from um, emotional um, trial um, and difficulties uh, is a little bit too tempting sometimes um, for us to resist and kind of just run away when things get difficult. And so I think that's, that's a hurdle that we have to jump over. Um, 
makes me think of like the rise of work friendships mm-hmm. of like you can make acquaintances and works and pals that like you get along with at work mm-hmm. but then that only goes so far or only goes to a depth of so so far mm-hmm. and then you're like well i i feel kind of close with the people who maybe i work with or i'm like have a you know consistent connection with because of some commonality but at the end of the day, they're not the person who I feel like I could call in the middle of the night, like if I needed help or yeah. needed somebody to talk to, or not not a, not not a place where I can just show up at their doorstep and right. and be welcomed. And that's usually demonstrated when you switch jobs. Yeah, oh, and those yeah. and those relationships aren't maintained. And Absolutely. Like, okay, like, yeah, that like okay, we, now we have a sense of what that relationship actually was. Right. Yeah. So there's something more to it. Yeah. There's yeah. something more than just commonality. Yeah, or proximity. Yeah. Right. Um, it can create a level of friendship, but it can't make the level of friendship that we're maybe all longing for. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's something I was going to say. I don't remember. I think it had something to do with just, you know, the difficulty of creating relationship, mm-hmm. creating friendship when they're, in the adult stage of life when it hasn't been, it wasn't initiated at a less complex stage. Yeah. You know, for me to like go out and say, okay, I'm going to go find, I'm going to go out and find a best friend. Well, it, you know, I, someone like, I I think it's like, there's the complexities of, and I don't want to just like, I don't know. It feels really like part of it is because this is something that like all of us, I think all of us, I know mm-hmm. are still wrestling with that. We don't really have this figured out. Mm-hmm. I, so I don't want to just be lamenting the complexities of it, but like the complexity is, is like, well, if you're going to go find a friend, I also need to find someone who's willing to, um, not just be a friend to me, but be a friend to me, uh, at least to the extent that they are helping me, like care for and love my family better. Mm-hmm. I need somebody who is not just like a friend to me, but someone who's willing to be a friend to me so that I in, in part I can be a better person for my family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that whole trying to find couple friends, right? Like that, that whole dynamic of trying to find uh, a couple that you can both hang out with and you both mutually like you, all four of you like each other, right? That, that complexity, um, the fact of the matter that like, you know, you've got like, you've got evening engagements throughout the week. You know, we've got work engagements, maybe, um, kids got things going on and stuff like that. And you spend, if you're already spending a couple nights a week out of the house, doing something kind of obligatory, yep. like, man, sometimes it would just be really nice to just stay home. Right. And like, not put right. myself out there. Right. Um, I, I think I'm going to take the conversation a little bit um, to, a, to a slightly different direction. But the, the one thing that popped up in my head is like, so, so what, what are some things that people can do to, um, how do we, how do we naturally, so you, Cameron, you said, you know, I, I want to go out and, and, you know, find a best friend and like that, I think for all of us, that statement there, like walk out the door and go find a best friend feels awkward. Like, 
how do you even do that? Like what, what is that going to entail? Like, do I just go grab somebody and like start to emotionally? And, and that's, that's just not natural. I don't think that's how friendships happen. And I think going back to our relationship, how it started friendships happen. I think a lot of the times through um, one person needing help um, a lot of the time. So one, one way that I, I think that I have learned and this i forget who said this quote but uh there an older i don't know somebody said this i don't remember who but they said the best way uh, when you're moving to a new town to get yourself invested in the community uh, is to ask for help don't do favors for other people ask for help why because everybody in the community is looking for ways to show that they are a reliable part of the community that they are somebody who can be trusted somebody who is a good person someone who is helpful someone who is a, a part of the community and you are giving them an opportunity um, to one show that and to two make them feel as if in, in some ways that you're 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 you know that you're a little indebted to them they people don't like to you know feel themselves indebted but when they feel like i've really you know supplied something to their life you know you feel stable right as as somebody who is contributing to the larger community and people so like to be needed people like to be needed and so one of the ways that now that i've started a homestead uh that naturally that i have um gotten people to drive 45 minutes from columbus out to my small property um to be my friend <laughs> uh, from my church because we live a good distance away from our church is say, I, I can't do some of this work on my own. Would you be willing to come out and help with me? And especially guys, like guys in my church come out in droves to do free labor for me. <laughs> um, and it's pretty awesome. Um, and, you know, you know, I feed them and, and they, you know, they come out and then we sit and we hang out and like, I've gotten some great relationships in my church now because, um, and they have not come out and helped again for like, you know, four or five months. But that one time of them feeling as if they are, um, helping me, uh, which they were, um, and that, that investing into my family. Right. And, and what I'm, and I think human beings are, are more, I think here's here's a key thing. Uh, we are much more willing to invest physically than emotionally. Mm-hmm. Like we're we're more scared of like filling an emotional void for somebody than we are a physical void. Like I think I would much more be if someone said, "I need you to help me work for eight hours," versus showing up to a coffee shop and saying, you know, just being immediately vulnerable and like kind of asking for that one scares me more than the other right yeah. um yeah. i'd rather go work phys- like yeah. i'd rather go chop wood for two weeks for you than for you to come up to me and say like so you know um i i'm just out of you know a bad relationship uh and you know all these things it's like wow okay my goodness and so i think a, just a, a way for to naturally find friends is to be vulnerable in s- some simpler ways. Um, ask, ask somebody to do yard work. Ask somebody to um, do, um, you know, come help you change your oil. Like, especially guys. Guys like to do um, things together. And I really enjoy doing things with other guys um, because we like to fix things. Like, come help me. Like, my friends and I have just realized, like, why why do we keep doing all of our oil changes on our own? Like let's all park our cars together and I'll do our oil changes. And then maybe we'll figure out how to do, I don't know. uh, We'll, we'll do somebody's suspension too. Um, 
guys like to be physical. So I think that's a natural way to start to bridge the vulnerability gap in a way that's not be my deep friend right now. Yeah, those types of things are much wider front doors to yes. walk to to walk through. That's a much easier door to walk through than like you said, mm-hmm. you know, hey, because it, it 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 speaks to the situation that you you know were describing about like that person that just rushes in with the emotional vulnerability that yep. is too much, you know. Um, and that you you know typically is the ways in which my friendships have been developed. You know, they start somewhere else. Yep. You know, they start on the jujitsu mat, or they start, you know, in a police car, or they start somewhere else. You know, other environments where I'm, you know, they start here too. You know, um, but that, yeah, that 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 door becomes a little bit wider. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just to be clear, when you say in a police yeah, car, I need it. not a, not like putting someone in the back of the police car or <laughs> some, no. so, someone I mean, like, might need your context. Yeah, for so that. some people, some people might know, so others might not know that I, um, uh, work with sheriff's office here in the County and as a peer to them, um, and work in, chaplaincy and wellness for officers and employees of the sheriff's office and their family. And, um, some of my most significant friendships have come through, you know, that work with, Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I'm not, I've never been arrested. Yeah. I'm not in the back of a police car. Right. Yeah. So just wanted to clarify that in case anyone got super confused. You've never been in the back of a police car. Well, I've been in the back of a police car, but not with handcuffs on (laughs) because I did something I shouldn't have, you know? So, but yeah, I, I do think that there is a, it's a, it's a risk to make friends. Yeah. And I think, I, I, the thing that encourages me, that, or at least I have to tell myself when I'm trying to make a friend, is like, they are probably looking for friendship as much as I am. Yep. Mm-hmm. Let's just try and yeah, get the, on the same page. The, 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 the chances of you finding somebody who is so deeply involved in so many friendships and fully comfortable within their friend group is is slim to none. I think we, it's it's clear that that, that, that need is, is so prevalent for everybody um Mm -hmm. we just have of loss we don't have the relationships of you know like the last supper being able to lean truly lean on um a friendship um in the deepest darkest parts of of our vulnerability and and feeling a full comfortable um ability to trust that yeah people do sometimes ask me like what does it take and I'm like, I don't know if you figure it out, like, let me know. But, um, but in general, you know, like the answer of, well, um, being the type of friend that you want others to be or need others to be for you is a really mm-hmm. good start. Yeah. You know, like attracts like, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you're having a sense of like, well, how do I find or develop the type of friendship that, you know, like I feel like my soul needs you know a pretty a pretty generalized answer to that is well are you to others whom you need mm-hmm. uh and and what i've found is that that tends to that tends to um, i guess for lack of a better term it tends to work mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah let us you know 
I think, try and be Christ for other people mm-hmm. in some to some degree and mm-hmm. inside of the form of contact or mm-hmm. friendship and stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I think that's probably enough for today. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, thanks for joining us, Silas. And yeah. Yeah. Helping us to speak on the topic. I'm sure we'll return to it in some way, shape or form. Or mm-hmm. If you have questions about this podcast or you have questions in general, where we, like we say, we are always looking for questions to do mailbag episodes. We've done a few of those so far. and We're still looking for those. The text line, um, if you want to text in a question or a comment or whatever, is 716-201-0507. Uh-huh. I think that's it. Yeah. I don't have my little... Um, It'll be on the screen and in the description. Yeah. It's and, not. Yeah. Look at the description, not my words, because I don't... <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm still relying on my sticky note to say it, but I think it's two zero one zero five zero seven seven one six there. Um, yeah, and uh, text in any questions or comments you have. As always, please like it, rate it, and share it in whatever format that you are listening to it. It helps to get more exposure. I think on this our twentieth podcast yeah, so. episode. So, thanks for joining us, Silas. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yep. Have a good day. It was good.